0: Welcome to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. For those of you that are new to the podcast, this is a show where we chat with cool people doing cool things who inspire me and hopefully inspire you to get out of our comfort zones through the stuff that they're doing and the ideas that they're having. Today, I'm chatting with Hamish Wright. Now, Hamish is a Kiwi doctor who is just actually finished up working down at the Amundsen Scott station at the Geographic South Pole. Uh, we recorded this conversation while Hamish was still down there, and actually, they don't get internet until about 11 o'clock at night. So, we're chatting uh, about midnight. So, it's a pretty interesting conversation, and there's a few crackles in it just because of the. Uh, The connection wasn't great, but I think we can kind of uh, get past that hopefully because Hamish was at the South Pole. So we talked through a few interesting topics today, namely what they actually do at the South Pole, um, including monitoring climate change, looking for evidence of the Big Bang, um, what they have for dinner at the South Pole and why you can have two desserts while you're living there as well. Hamish also talks about the process of getting selected to go down and work there, um, including missing out a couple of times before nailing it, but while missing out, honing the skills that he needed to get himself down there to fill a dream. Hamish and I have a chat about training for a marathon while down at the South Pole, building igloos, and actually taking the time to get out and have a look around at what's going on around you, whether that's at the South Pole, or whether that's wherever you're at at the moment. I just want to say thanks to everyone for taking the time to have a listen to us today, but uh, big shout out to all the new listeners from the Isle of Man and South Africa that have been tuning in over the last couple of uh, couple of weeks. It's cool to have you guys on board. Make sure to reach out and say hi either on Facebook, on Instagram or send me an email at uncomfortableisok at gmail.com. As always... Thanks for taking the time to get uncomfortable with me and Hamish today. Hamish, g'day. Welcome to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. Thanks for uh, sitting down and having a bit of time with me tonight. Whereabouts are you at the moment?
1: Uh, I'm in Antarctica at the moment I'm at the Geographic South Pole, I'm based at the Amundsen Scott um, South Pole Station, which is run by the, the United States Antarctic Program. So if I look out my window at the moment, I'm staring straight at the bottom of the Earth, just outside the window. <laughs>
0: That's pretty impressive. And how did you end up there?
1: Yeah, it's a, it was a kind of a bit of a saga to get down here. Um, like, I've always been always been pretty keen to, to come down to Antarctica since I was a young kid. You know, we used to go to Christchurch and see the herks on the runway at Christchurch Airport and go to the museum and see all the you know the Antarctic displays and stuff. And I was, always thought that that would be, you know, it's a pretty unique place to be able to visit. And it's, you know, it's one of the last sort of I was like, man, that would be an awesome place to go to. And so, after after finishing finishing my med school degree, I I started looking into how to get down here in a, you know, full stop. And then, the obvious steps in to go down, you know, was to go down in a professional capacity, because um, then you know, you don't have to pay a whole heap of money to go on some fancy tourist cruise, and you can actually go down and sort of be a part of a genuine experience. And unfortunately, the New Zealand. Um, base uh, so Scott base in the Ross Sea um, is, is right beside McMurdo station which is an American uh, the biggest American run station and and because the close proximity means that um, Scott base doesn't have medical staff base there um, and, and McMurdo provides the medical support um, so then looked into, you know, what were other options and the Australians have got three bases on the Antarctic so I started getting into contact with them and, and sort of went through a whole process and was shortlisted a couple of times and, and didn't quite make the cut um, and, and kind of put my life on hold for a couple of years trying to chase this dream and and um, and get the experience that they recommended um, and required to you know, to be a medical provider in such an environment um, and it was a bit frustrating to go through that and, and still just miss the final hurdle and then uh, i was I was you know I was ready to throw in the towel and, and all of a sudden i um saw a an ad for this job here in a in an email bulletin that I subscribed to and and flipped through my details through to the the contact and, and you know within a day or two, I was having phone interviews and within you know two months later I had a job offer to to come down here for the yes so it was all pretty fortuitous in the end that that it worked out um after kind of this prolonged process with the Australian Uh, Antarctic program um but yeah it's been
0: it's been a, a pretty interesting and different place to to be I can imagine yeah it's it's kind of really the the last sort of wild frontier if you like that's kind of left in in the world that's um yeah it's just kind of man against against the elements so you've been down there since November last year is it? Uh, So the I
1: actually came down in um,
0: in mid January. Um, The 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 station opens in
1: in early November, but they for the medical staff there's a summer person for a couple of months over the summer, and then uh, the winter person um, comes in in January, which is the sort of end of um and through till november which is the beginning of summer so obviously the the summer is short and the winter is very long um so yes yeah, so i will have by the time i leave i will have had um uh, pretty much bang on 10 months on the
0: ice and so you're the only medical you you're the the doctor down there you're the only kind of medical professional there uh, so
1: no, so there's two of us. So there's myself, um, and there's a physician assistant um that I work with. Um and there used to just be one doctor here and then they, the doctor themselves got sick a couple of times, um over, you know, in, in repeated seasons and so they uh given it's so hard to, to get people out of here, um they they deemed that it's necessary to have a second provider here. Um so myself and colleague, uh we we cover the ship here.
0: And you mentioned that you kind of put your life on hold, uh, chasing chasing the dream for a couple of years, what sort of prerequisites did you have to get to qualify to, to be a doctor down in Antarctica?
1: Yeah, like it's, it's kind of uh, it's sort of an eclectic mix of skills. You need to like in in medicine these days you can you can no longer be comp- well, you can be kind of competent in a range of areas, but you can no longer be sort of vastly experienced in, in all domain medicine now. Um and so they've kind of had to sort of pick and choose um over the years and, and you know, they've had people with, you know, just pure surgical or pure emergency or pure family practice kind of experience and um and obviously, they've you know those people have strong strengths in those areas. Um, the American program is, is less prescriptive in exactly what experience you have, um, and as long as they sort of deem that you've got enough. Um, over over the you know sort of range of likely um, conditions you'll experience um, then, then that's okay uh, the australians were were a lot sort of more prescriptive and, and wanted certain amounts of, of time and, and surgical you know um, expertise and anesthetic time and uh, family practice and, and remote medicine um, experience so that was sort of the you know i, I went and of general surgery last year to to um, you know hone my skills and, and if you know if we had to take out someone's appendix down here or or deal with you know some major intra abdominal issue or other surgical problem that would be a uh, you know obviously still stressful um, to do it in such a remote environment but it would be um, yeah, you know you have a lot more skills under your belt.
0: Mm, mm, interesting. So you went down in January this year. So Hamish, kind of logistically, how do you uh, how do you get from New Zealand to the geographic South Pole? So the
1: um, so the Americans have got three bases on the continent. Um, so they've got McMurdo Station, uh, which is you know directly due south New Zealand. Um, so you know if I was to head from head north uh, from here, obviously everywhere is north, but north towards New Zealand, I'd, I'd go past McMurdo. Um, and so that that sort of um, works as this this that's the major station for the for the continent and and all of the flights um, and logistics to here um, is routed through there. So uh, we flew on a on a ski-equipped Hercules um, out of Christchurch Airport. So a, a um, US Air Force Air National Guard um, Hercules down to McMurdo um, and we were there for a few days, and then flew on to here. And so it's about another five hours, four or five hours flight south from the edge of the continent to here. So it's, it's, you know, it's 1300 kilometers away. Um, So people kind of think, oh, you know, you're, you know, Antarctica is Antarctica, but, you know, it's the size of North America and we're about as close as you are. Um, If you're in, you know, the middle of the middle of the country to to LA kind of thing is, you know, equivalent from here to the coast. Um, So it's a, it's a long way. away.
0: Yeah. And what's it like flying over Antarctica? Um, it's a pretty windy place, isn't it? So uh, quite quite bumpy and quite a rough flight.
1: Um, so like on the on the coast, it gets really windy. So they've got the katabatic wind. So the, the interior of the continent is a lot higher. So, you know, we're at over 3,000 metres here. Um, and, and the wind, um, you know, accelerates as it flows down off the continent. And so on the edge of the, edge of the continent, it can get really windy up to, you know, hundred and fifty knots kind of thing, um, at you know, on record. Um here at the actual South Pole it's it's always there's always wind. Um well, not always wind, but wind the vast majority of the time. Um but it's actually we don't get um too bad a wind here. It's obviously very cold here. Um but the the wind is worse on the edge of the continent and, and generally the the wind will whip up um, snow and ice, and that limits visibility. Um, and so you, they often don't fly uh, when, when it's too windy anyway, just because the visibility is limited and they can't get into land. So flights, you know, flights are often cancelled. We're, we're waiting at the moment for a plane that was due here uh, six days ago, and hopefully we'll get it tomorrow. Let's um, bring our first fresh friend, and recent some since February so that will be nice to see but it's just a bit frustrating that's been going the fruits been going off in McMurdo for a week
0: yeah yeah it'll be well received but probably would have been better received yeah six days ago Um, obviously that makes some some challenges if you need to get things in and out quickly so you guys are just kind of really really remote and can potentially be quite isolated from from everywhere else how many people um, are at the base? Um, so
1: it fluctuates depending, obviously, summer versus winter. Um, it's is a, a big change. So in winter, um, we had 48 uh, people here. Um, and in summer, uh, the capacity station is just over 150. Um, and they'll be at capacity for... A big chunk of that. So, and a lot of those people are cycling in and out, you know, just down for a week or two. So, particularly scientists will come down to work on some big science projects, um, you know, over the summer. And that's when a lot of the work gets done um, in terms of, um, you know, installing new hardware and, and overhauling systems and things. Um, and then in the winter, um, that's where a lot of the data collection occurs, but that sort of just a skeleton crew to, to run the, the things then. Um, but yeah, so 48 is still, you know, still quite a few people. Um, and obviously, there's lots of different systems and things that need to be uh, you know, kept up, and you know, a range of different tradesmen, T people, and you know, galley crew, and medical staff, and and then about a dozen people in charge of the science aspects.
0: Cool. So you're just kind of keeping things ticking over uh, across the winter. Um, so Hamish, probably the listeners are thinking the South Pole, the South Pole is a really cool place to be. It's it's pretty awesome, but What's the purpose of the station there? Like, why have they why have they plonked one there rather than just to say, "Oh yeah, we've got we've got one here"? So, what sort of stuff are you guys uh, are the scientists looking at?
1: Well, I I think for a long time, you know, we're just going to our sixtieth year uh, for the station here uh, next year. Um, So, I think initially, that you know, it was a, a geopolitical play by the Americans to to kind of claim um, the South Pole is, is one of their spots kind of thing obviously no one owns Antarctica but I think that was part of it um, and then you know and then subsequently they've thought about what science is possible here um, and so a, a lot of it is um, is atmospheric um, so that, you know it's one of the uh, global uh, monitoring stations for the um, for NOAA which is the National Oceanic and atmospheric administration um so they deal with you know monitoring uh, co2 levels in the atmosphere um things like chloroflu- chlorofluorocarbons that you know, that degrade the ozone hole they measure those they measure you know, particulates and and um, ozone levels and a whole range of different um different things in the atmosphere so that sort of one branch is the atmospheric guys um, then there's a whole uh, series of, of three big telescopes that look at the cosmic microwave background which is um Sort of the signature um, as as a microwave signal that is throughout the the, um, throughout the universe, and they think that that's the um, sort of the the residue from the Big Bang. Um, They're looking for a specific um, pattern and in polarization of, of that microwave pattern. Um, so these they're not optical telescopes. They're just looking at, at microwaves, and they they're looking for um, what's called B-mode polarizations, which is a if, if they can find them, is, is a strong evidence um, for what happened in the first three minutes of of the universe. Essentially, um, there's you know there's um, physical uh, f- you know, physicists. Theoretical physicists have, have proposed these theories, and, and and this is sort of the science trying to track that down. Um, and then there's a uh, the IceCube neutrino array, which is a uh, one kilometre uh, wide, uh, so one kilometre square, um, and then uh, sort of. Matrix of of um, drilled holes and cables uh, buried in the ice, and they are each buried um, about fourteen hundred meters deep, uh, with a whole lot of uh, sensors uh, buried in them. So there's a, a sort of a big, you know, it's called ice cube because it's a, a big array of, of wires buried in a cube shape in the in the ice, um, and that's looking for uh, evidence of neutrinos. So neutrinos are subatomic particles, you know, which are generated in, in high energy. Um, cosmic events and transmitted uh, through space, and they pass through matter, so neutrinos can pass straight through the core of the Earth. Uh, But when they interact with ice, they can release a certain um, wavelength of light, which can be detected by these um, detectors on these long cables. And so that's essentially what it's looking for. So it's it's trying to find um, high-energy neutrinos, and from that they can try and triangulate uh, energy sources deep in the universe, um, and try and, trying, you know, instead of you know, all of the last couple hundred years has been optical. You know, we've looked at stars and we've looked at um, what's going on out there. Um, but that is only one of the, you know, the 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 sources of electromagnetic radiation that's coming through the universe. And so the the, the use of neutrinos is as sort of a new medium for for exploring the universe. That
0: just blows my mind. Eh? All of that stuff, that's, yeah. it's all just really incredible, like, high-level stuff. Um, do you get to kind of, uh, kind of go in and, and have a play with the scientists and kind of go in and watch what they're, watch what they're doing? They're pretty open to kind of letting you in and have a lot, having a look. Yeah, so like, you know,
1: obviously we live with the scientists every day and, I'm good friends with, with several of them and, and uh and they often need help with, with certain things. So the you know, the, the scientists that are based here are not the um the principal investigators. So the principal investigators are a professors at Harvard or MIT or um Caltech or wherever. Um, and there. so, you know, the guys here are Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the you know the, the, the lead investigators will come down over the summer and, and oversee and, and over you know, um deal with things and but the guys here are uh largely uh keeping the lights on so to speak um but we you know we go out there and, and help them quite a lot you know often they'll need need a an, another couple of sets of hands you know setting up um and in the summertime they do calibration um processes which which needs setups of, of different um equipment and and something that's quite big and bulky and so you, you know you're trying to maneuver around you know 200 kilogram mirrors and minus 40 degree temperature with and trying to screw in nuts and bolts without letting your fingers freeze which is a, a bit of a, a bit of a challenge but yeah so we, we do a lot with the science guys you know obviously we're not we're just sort of floating around helping them out and things um but they you know they're very open and very willing to to share what's going on in, in their science obviously they're down here because they love it and and and, are, and happy for other people to learn about it and it's it's pretty awesome you know like the the there was the, the big announcement earlier this year the lido um array that that proved gravitational waves um existed which was one of einstein's theories um is is very similar to what the cosmic microwave background uh is looking at so the 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 stuff that they're trying to look for here is is all very interrelated and and on a similar scale um you know these uh, these projects are worth hundreds of millions of u s dollars like ice cube i think was three hundred million u s dollars so it's a it's a big ticket item on the uh, on the science budget front. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it's pretty awesome if they, you know, there's this kind of stuff that, that could win the Nobel Prize in Physics in, in a few years' time kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, man, that's that's pretty incredible. Has your scientific kind of knowledge of physics and things just skyrocketed since you've been there for the last 10 months and been involved with all of this stuff?
1: Um, I, I guess I've always had a, a pretty strong interest in, in physics and astronomy and things like that. I, you know, I didn't know that much about this kind of stuff, and, and you know the exact nuances of a lot of it is 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 pretty niche. Um, but you know, I as it's, it's all pretty stimulating stuff, and, and I wouldn't say my general <laughs> knowledge or you know like I've learned more about these, these niche fields. Um, and and one of the the scientists that runs one of the the telescopes he's he's got a, a degree in astronomy so he ran astronomy classes for a couple of months for us which was which was awesome because you know i knew a bit about that stuff but i didn't know that much about the different you know aspects of of what you know what is contained in our universe so that was that was sort of awesome and that and that sort of gives a bit of context to the what the science is that's
0: going on down here yeah yeah man that's it's just incredible and i mean like talking about this stuff at the moment it just kind of makes you sort of aware of how much information there is out there that i don't know personally and and uh, you don't know personally and the listeners don't know personally but also kind of how much information is is out there that as a human race we don't know about yet and we're kind of only just discovering and probably these discoveries that are being made down at the south pole at the moment are going to kind of lead on to to the next thing that we that we didn't know about which is yeah pretty it's, it gets pretty deep actually pretty quickly when you start to think about it like that
1: yeah like that you know a lot of it comes down to sort of philosophy and then you know like the you know, what is the universe? And you start thinking like, oh, man, like, the, you know, the, the scientists, they talk about the first three minutes of what happened in the Big Bang. And you're like, well, what was there before the Big Bang? And, and that sort of, that whole stuff, which you just, you can't comprehend because you've got no sort of yardstick to measure against and, and no sort of point of reference. Um, but it's, it starts to get pretty, yeah, pretty mind-blowing and pretty, you know, a little bit overwhelming, but, but also pretty, pretty awesome. And then you think, you know, then it's pretty easy to come back down to earth when you realize what's for dinner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 The good thing about science is, um, yeah, every new discovery leads to a, to a new question. There's always something new to, uh, to find out. Um, speaking of new questions, what do you guys have for dinner?
1: Uh, <laughs> we have a five week rotating menu, which, uh, like, um, you know, we can't get fresh fruit and vegetables in for, for, nine and a half months um and so there's you've got a limitless deep freeze space obviously so there's uh what they call the berms which are just um you know pallets of, of stuff stacked on uh, stacked out the back of the station and you know, a lot of that's you know equipment and but a lot of that's food so they'll bring in a you know a whole pallet of bacon or breakfast cereal and things and so there's a lot of it's a, a little bit on the used by um you know past it's used by by a number of years but uh when it's chilled constantly you know at minus 40 degrees or minus 50 degrees it it lasts pretty well and and uh and so we end up having a lot of you know all the vegetables have come from frozen all the fruit you know it it was either canned or frozen um all the you know a lot of deep fried goodness and and the the chefs are always trying to Derail our weight loss programs with, uh, you know, with two desserts a day and a cooked breakfast every morning and things. Um, but uh, it's yeah, we'll be looking forward to getting some fresh red veggies, that's for sure. But um, like the food, the food here has been, um, you know, there's nothing to. More people do complain just by the nature of of repet, repetition and, and not being able to cook themselves. But um, the, the chefs do a very admirable job for the uh, the environment that they're presented with.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. I think you're always going to get a few complaints from from people, but at the end of the day, in in that environment, food is is fuel for the most part, so that you can kind of keep going rather than anything uh, sort of super super gourmet.
1: Yeah, exactly, and, and they and and winter it's a bit because they're only cooking for 40-odd people compared to in summer. And, you know, when we pass through McMurdo in summer, we've got over a 1,000 people there. So it's very much sort of just a um, convey about kind of situation where you're just being doled out what's being cooked on bulk. Um, But here, you know, the the cooks have a bit more ability to, you know, they hand-make bread every day and they, you know, hand-make dessert, well, two desserts every day, which um, the nice thing, Though, is though because we're a at altitude and B it's really cold outside. Your metabolic rate, on average, is is a lot higher than back home, and so um, you do burn through a lot more energy here. And you can you can afford to have fries with you know every other lunch and, and dessert, you know, a piece of cake at at lunch and at dinner uh, without without you know worrying about putting on weight. So that's been a nice luxury.
0: Yeah, yeah. Interesting you say that about the the metabolic rate as well because uh, outside of the doctoring and sciencing that you've been doing down there, you've also been training for a marathon as well. How does that work at the South Pole?
1: Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of time watching terrible quality uh, movies on a treadmill. Uh, so hopefully next week I'll break um, a 1,000 kilometres on a treadmill uh, over the last well, since since early February, so you know, in the last nine and a bit months, um, which is, uh, it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty boring uh, at times, and, and I've I've had study to do this year as well for some big exams of have so it's also been nice. I can you know, I can do flashcards on the tremor while I run, but it was it was hard when we first got here because you're going from sea level straight to over three thousand meters of of physiological. Air. And and that, you know, the atmospheric pressure is two thirds what it is um, at sea level, and that that affects your ability to oxygenate uh, quite significantly, especially when you're exercising. Um, And so, uh, you know, a lot of people, even just walking around here when they first get here, uh, get the wind knocked out of them. um, And gradually, you know, walking up the stairs, you don't have to stop halfway up, and then, you know, you can walk the whole way up the stairs, and then you can, you know, drive half a mile, then a mile, and things. Um, and then by the end of it, you can run, you know, for 17 miles, uh, with, you know, with breaks for things like that. But it's, um, it's sort of much more of a slow, but steady pace here. Um, but in your, you know, your hemoglobin level, uh, gets pumped up as well as a result. Um, so it'll be nice. We're we're all looking forward to going back down to sea level and and running this race. Hopefully, hopefully it'll be, you know, the legal form of blood doping.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ten months uh training at, at altitude in the cold, you should absolutely uh absolutely blaze it. How hard has it been to kind of keep jumping on the treadmill when you're just when there isn't actually that much different to to be stuff to be looking at?
1: Um I oh, like I really enjoy the exercise. Like I obviously we have a lot of downtime here, um because you know, there's you can't go to the pub, you can't go to the supermarket, you can't go to the shops. You're just stuck within a one-kilometer radius, and so you you do, and all of your meals are cooked for you as well, which you know makes a big difference. And, and and work-wise, most people are much quieter here than they are in a normal job back home. So you do have quite a lot of downtime, and, and you need things to fill that. Um, and so getting into a good exercise pattern uh, early on was was pretty key. And, and by the you know by the mid-season. I'd, you know I'd be missing when I, you know you, you you're craving that endorphin boost of, of going for a run um and and so that you know there was a um a uh, you know something to to look forward to in its own right and and also a lot of people have a lot of trouble with sleep here um because of uh, you know your circadian rhythm is is um is messed up a, a whole lot because of it's either perpetual night or perpetual day in the two different seasons. Um, and then also the the altitude and, and things like that affects your sleep as well. So um, doing some exercise also you know, optimises your ability to sleep here as, as well, which which makes a big difference. Um, so a lot of people sleep a lot more poorly here than they do back home. And, and, and those that exercise and do a good cardio workout,
0: it um, makes a difference. The perpetual darkness that you that you're talking about. When does that kind of uh, when does that kick in? What sort of time of year and how long does that go for? So the
1: you know so at the pole um,
0: because we're right
1: at the at the, at the very bottom. Um, the you only have you know essentially one sunset one sunrise a year. Um, so we we get six months with the sun up um, from. Uh, from the equinox, um, uh, which is you know September, normally September the twenty-first, uh, through to through to March the twenty-first, um, the sun is up, um, and and that will you know gradually work its way up from the skies. You know, it's just constantly circling the sky, and when it first comes up, it's just above the horizon, and then it you know gets up to twenty-three degrees in on the solstice in December, and then it gradually descends its way down, and then from you know, and then it sets late March. It normally, actually, we can see the sun for a couple of days after the after the actual equinox, um, because it. Um, uh, the or well, the equinox, by definition, is only when fifty percent of the sun is below the horizon, and, and the atmosphere ducks a lot of light over, you know, bends the light through uh, past the horizon. Um, both here and at, at temperate latitudes. So when you're sitting on a west coast beach looking out to sea, and and you you see the sunset. If the sun's light wasn't bent, you would have already uh, lost sight of it. You know, a couple of minutes before that. Um, so we so we see the you know the last vestiges of sunlight disappear in, in late March and then we um, gradually go through sort of a, a prolonged period of twilight which lasts sort of um, up to about a month of gradually getting darker and and then we have sort of four months um, of darkness where you can see the stars um, and then we go through another sort of month of, of the, you know the, the sky transitioning from you know midnight blue through to sort of lighter shades of blue through a smudge of pink on the horizon then a bit of yellow and then and then sort of more and more light as the, as the sun gradually creeps up. Um, and then, it, you know, then it rises again um, in late September.
0: It's a pretty, pretty incredible concept to, to think about as well. But how is it actually living in the dark for four months? It's, yeah, like,
1: you know, you, you do miss the sun. Like when the sun came back, we you could there was a tangible notice in and, and you know your own sort of subjective mood as well as sort of the the morale in the station, so like it does it does affect you you like it was it was actually less of an issue than I thought it was going to be um you can still go outside you know when it's dark and you know the you can guide by starlight or by the and and when the moon's up mean you know, the moon's up for two weeks of every month um so when the moon's up, it's it's you know, noticeably a lot brighter and and because everything is white, you know, the ground is white it reflects moonlight very well. And so you can easily navigate when the moon's up. Um, when the moon's down it's you know, you sort of wander around and 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 you won't necessarily be able to see where you're going and and because there's no light to to project and and cast shadows, you often sort of walk along and all of a sudden you walked into a a snow drift or fallen off a snow drift that you didn't realise you were coming up to and yeah, it's never a big deal. You just kind of get get back up and, and, and wander off. But the you know from a from a um, from a mood point of view and, and things, I like I enjoyed the 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 night. Um, and and you know we get the fantastic aurora displays here. Um, and it's one of the best places to see aurora Australis, well. and so that really makes up for sort of any lack of sunlight and, and people come down, some of the guys come down here for repeated seasons because they just love the night and they, you know, come down and they love the auroras and they love just being away from the sun.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, the auroras, I've seen some, some, uh, pictures of them on your blog and you've taken quite a few photos while you've been down there of their auroras. And, uh, you actually you made uh you were one of the finalists for the national geographic photography awards is that right
1: yeah so the you know, new zealand geographic uh, magazine is does a photographer the Year competition and the awards are actually tomorrow night so we'll uh we'll see what happens there um unfortunately I, you know i'm sending my brother along as my representative yeah instead of myself um but uh yeah that was pretty awesome we i learned how to make timeps as well. I was down here and, and, and we, we're pretty lucky in terms of the displays we get. You know, you, you can go outside and on a sort of average day and it's it's by other people's standards would be sort of you know world class auroras. Um and, and the the days when you come down here and you go outside and, and they and they're going hard, they you know the the whole the whole sky's gone crazy. Um and yeah, you, know, you just put your camera out and in a warmed, heated box so that it doesn't die. After you know, if it's unheated, it only lasts fifteen minutes. But if you chuck a couple of hot water bottles in an insulated box, it will go f- for about four or five hours. Um, and then you know, you see what see what you get. And and I've been really lucky and and got some some pretty awesome some pretty awesome time lapses um, during the year. And it's a, it's a good way to um to get out and and you know, a good sort of incentive to go outside. And I've been trying to go outside every day, even if it's just for standing on one of the decks for for 20 seconds until I get too cold in my t-shirt and shorts. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I try to go outside and get dressed, you know, you've got to get dressed up in all of your gear and go outside properly every, at least every second day.
0: Yeah. Has that been an important routine for you um, just to kind of keep everything ticking over normally Is, is spending a bit of outside time?
1: I think outside time is really important you know you it's, it's very easy when you're in a, a relatively small station living with the same people day in day out to to kind of forget that where you are in the true environment that you're in um and then you know if you go outside um and and it's just such a um it's such a different environment here to to everywhere else like I'm you know looking out the window at the moment and, and you just, you know, you, there's nothing on the horizon and there is nothing on that horizon for over a thousand kilometers. It's just a flat white abyss, you know, and, and, and that's awesome. You know, when you sort of think about that, but if you don't get outside and sort of go for a wander and, and look up at the stars and things you, you know, it's, um it's a lot harder on the,
0: on the mind. Mm Hmm. I think i mean just kind of imagining myself in in that position again that that could lead you to be just really philosophical about everything and just kind of questioning your place in it all really um with kind of how how big almost a nothingness around you and then being able to see not just that that vast a span expanse of antarctica but also that vast expanse of the universe um must just really kind of put things in perspective for you
1: yeah like it's it's a it's a long way to anything and it's um and you know obviously we're here because it's the very bottom you know where, where the pole is but it, it's kind of you know, it's interesting that you could just you can just go such a long way and, and you'll find nothing like you uh, there's no wildlife there's no insects there's no mold you know the the bread never goes moldy because there's no you know no nearby source to inoculate it there's no birds there's no mice or flies or anything It's just it's a very you know in a way it's a very sterile environment um but in a way it's a you know like it, it is a in terms of featureless places in the world i guess it's, it's similar to to being in the middle of the pacific when when the closest thing is other than waves, are, uh, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of kilometres away. Um But you know the, the the guys on the International Space Station on on, on average are, are closer to humanity than we are. Um And when you think, oh, well, they're in space, then that, that's as a interesting sort of comparison.
0: That's quite mind blowing as well, actually. I'm, yeah, I'm not going to be able to yeah, sleep like after that, this conversation. Sorry, how far away are they? Yeah, I think they orbit around six or 700 kilometers.
1: About six or 700 kilometers uh, above us. Um, and, you know, the closest people to us are over a thousand kilometers away. So obviously, they, you know, they will pass parts of the Earth where they're, which are, in, you know, when they're passing over the Pacific or passing over you know, the Atlantic or something, then they'll be similar distances to humanity. But
0: on average, we're the vast majority of the time further away. Wow. It's that's pretty crazy. So Hamish, you've um, you've kind of you do a bit of exercise, you do some photography, you do you're doing some study for some uh, medical exams at the moment as well, just to kind of uh, keep everything ticking over there. But um, you guys do. Uh, a bit of fun stuff, and and have some kind of projects that you work on as well. I was reading on your blog that you uh, you and a few other guys built an igloo at one point. Can you tell me about that?
1: Um, yeah, so we we built a well. There's a few. Where we were keen to do something outside of a, a midwinter project. Um, ended up sort of being sort of in the late one of the sort of later months of of winter, um, and yeah, we we thought it'd be pretty cool to, to, to sleep outside, um, in the cold, obviously inside here in the, in the station, um, it's kept warm and, you know, you can be in t-shirt and shorts without much difficulty inside, but, you know, outside is a very really different story. And, and we thought, you know, you haven't really experienced living down here until you've slept outside. So we, we, uh, got five of us together and one of the guys watched some YouTube videos on how to build an igloo. None of us had ever built a proper igloo before and, we thought it was going to take a day and a week, uh, and uh, it was a bit of a prolonged saga. Um, and there's a lot of sceptics on the station um, who, you know, thought we were idiots, and thought that we were going to give up, and thought that you know, it was never going to, it was never going to be structurally sound enough to uh, to five of us. Um, but we. Yeah, it was, a, it was a testament, I guess, to, to all the guys. You know, everyone was was keen to probably partly because of all the naysayers to um to get through that. And uh, unfortunately, we just chose uh, one of the worst weeks in terms of winds here. So we were trying to build an igloo, and you know, in the pitch black. Aside from you know, at one moment, there was for about half an hour we had an amazing aurora display go on where our head torches were were um, Washed out by the, the aurora light from overhead, and the, you know the, sk- the sky and the, and the snow turned turned green for for half an hour, and we all just sat there and lay down and and enjoyed the moment, and then uh, got on to, to building it again. But I think it was about uh, 98 blocks um, to build it, and it was 13 feet in diameter, and and it was it was awesome. It was uh, it was miserable getting to that stage, but um, yeah, we, we had a good time and. and uh, it was, it was a was fun place to sleep with. You know, we all had double sleeping bags and uh, and um, you know had a had a meal out there that we shared and and had a whiskey to celebrate and you know if you the guy the Americans love drinking their whiskey on the rocks so you just can just chip a bit of ice off the wall for for that um, and yeah that was, it was a fun project.
0: Yeah, oh that sounds that sounds awesome and a great great memories and great story from that as well. Now, Hamish, I could talk for you, uh, talk to you for hours about this stuff, mate, um, but I'm mindful that it's midnight at the moment um, and you still need to do a bit of stuff before tomorrow. So we might jump into the questions that I usually ask everybody. So the first one is, can you tell me about a time that you've failed and what you learnt from it? Um, I, I guess,
1: like, in terms of the setting, like, I... I tried to get the I tried to get the job through the Australian program and and I'd, I'd missed it on the on the first hurdle, which was you know understandable. And then I, I thought I was another you know, pretty solid chance for the second time round, but and then you know, found out uh, that I that I'd missed out again, and, and that was that was incredibly frustrating because I'd, I'd put stuff on hold for you know for two years and moved around moved around New Zealand three times to get the experiment uh, the ex- that they had recommended that I get to, to optimize my chance to get the job, and, and I was I was pretty disillusioned. I was doing a job that I wasn't really enjoying, and, and was you know under the pump at work, um, and sort of all to no avail because because Antarctica wasn't going to happen, and, um, and and so I guess that was a, that was a big knockback, and, and so to to then get this opportunity was a was an awesome sort of silver lining in a way, um, and you know. I never thought I could apply for this job and probably if it wasn't for having done all that experience um, that they'd recommended, it, but I potentially wouldn't have got this job. Um, so it was, in a way, it was very fortuitous. Um, but, you know, it was, was at the time, it uh, was, was not a, a fun time. But.
0: No, no, kind of a, a couple of failures on your on your way to success. Failures, uh, Failure is the right word for that there. Yeah. Probably, probably not in this instance. Um Amish, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it?
1: Uh well spending a, a long winter with you know, in, in very confined situations with uh with the same forty eight people and no chance of escape is and it's uh is a pretty uncomfortable thing, I guess, in its own way. Um, you know, we've had there's definitely been personality conflicts and, and you know interpersonal strife along the way. Um and that's been you know that's been a challenge to get through and a challenge to deal with um, the different nuances of that um, but you know i guess you know like anything you have to you have to stick to your stick to your principles and stick to your guns um, and 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 not get not let it get you down you know like it's some um, the aspect of life here is, 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 I guess, one of the big one of the big downsides. But it's also, you know, it's also a big interpersonal challenge. You know, like I, I've taken away a lot for myself, and, and you know, when you're under that under that pressure, and under that stress, you you act differently to how you normally act, and, and that's a, an interesting insight into into you know who you really are. Um, so you know, it was. It's been it's been a, a great year, but it's it's also been a, a pretty challenging year on that front.
0: And what's the next
1: uncomfortable thing that you're going to do? Run run a marathon in a couple of weeks, which will be hopefully not terribly uncomfortable. But then um, I've got another another big set of exams to, to get through, which um, which I now need to do in the next year or two, and, and so. I've... I've lined them up to do a couple of months after I get back and, and normally people study for, you know, for nine to 12 months for them. Um, and I'm going to take a bit of time off and try and cram it into to, uh, two and a half to three months. So uh, that will be a bit miserable in its own way, getting back to the books and, and back to the grind when, when you just want to sort of stretch your wings and, and experience the world again after being in such a confined place. But it's also a, Pretty awesome opportunity to be able to get those exams out of the way if I can, um, and
0: then I can move on with
1: with the rest of life and my career and all that kind of stuff.
0: Awesome. So Hamish, I've got a couple of a uh, couple of questions to finish up with, um, but before I ask them, I just want to say thanks very much for taking the time to to have a chat with me tonight, um, and thanks to your sister Jackie for for putting us in touch. Um, yeah, it's been really interesting to hear what you've been experiencing um, down in, uh, at the South Pole and just to kind of open my eyes a little bit more to kind of some of the cool stuff that, and cool discoveries that are, that are going on uh, in the world of stuff that I don't even usually think about. So it's been, yeah, it's been very, very cool having that chat. The next question no the next question I've got for you mate is um it's pretty easy. So if people kind of want to find out a little bit more about your experiences um down at at the station, where can they go? Uh so I've I've kept a blog while I've been here. Um
1: so it's www.hamishjright.w W-R-I-G-H-T, .wordpress.com. Um, and that unfortunately has fallen a little bit by the wayside when I was sort of at peak study mode for these exams a month or so ago, but uh, I've tried to, you know, keep it on to target on a few different facets of life down here, some of the science and some of the, you know, the, the everyday life and things. So, um, you yeah, know, that's, that's there. And, and if anyone wants to contact me, it's easy to contact me through that and, and uh, happy to answer any questions and, and things because it's a, you know, it's a pretty is a pretty unique place that not many people get to experience. So it's, a, it's been cool to be able to share some of that with, with other people who you know who will never be able to get the opportunity to come down here.
0: Awesome. And I'll put a link to that uh, in the notes as well so that people can um, can uh, pop over there from the, the podcast site. Now, Hamish, before we finish up, do you have any life lessons or uh, amusing anecdotes or interesting facts to leave me and the listeners with Oh man,
1: uh, interesting life lessons. Like I, I think, um, you know, like I I always thought this was a bit of a pipe dream to come down here. Um, and you know, a lot of people, a lot of colleagues and friends and things would would, well, you know, since I've come down, have told me about how they'd love to be here and 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 things. And I and I remember looking into it years ago um, and thinking, man, that's such. The logistics and the cost of, of having people down here is such a is such a saga. But I, I guess, you know, anything is possible, I think, you know, if, if you put your mind to it and you just have, you know, like there's been sacrifices along the way for sure. And I've had to, you know, make decisions to facilitate the opportunity to come down here, plus a, a, a good chunk of luck that this, you know, this job happened to materialise. Um, but, you know, I guess that was the big thing for me is that you can, you know, you can do the stuff that you've always wanted to do if you if you put your mind to and, and make some sacrifices along um, I guess that's my big take home um, in terms of in terms of other stuff that uh, that goes on it's uh, yeah like I guess you never know what before coming here like I'd I'd, I'd not really experienced proper cold um, you know I've, I've been skiing in New Zealand on my windy days where it's you know minus 20 with wind chill and you're like man that's cold and then you know, now when it, we hit minus 40, we got sort of a warm spell a couple of weeks ago where it hit minus 40, and you're like, you know, you think that that's tropical and you're outside and you're taking off your balac- you know, two layers of balaclavas and, and things like that because it's, it's, uh, it's back to warm weather and, and sort of that whole, that whole reference frame of what is cold and what is not cold is, is, you know, forever changed when you've, when you've experienced, you know, minus 100 degrees with wind on you know Celsius with wind you uh, on, on your arms um so uh, yeah I guess that was that's been a not not that you want to always be strong after but it's uh, it's pretty hard to beat a you know that when someone tries to tell you about how cold it is outside um and uh yeah there's yeah I guess there's plenty of, there's plenty of interesting anecdotes and, and, and some of the logistics of, of of you know we've burnt a million litres of jet fuel this winter to to keep the station going, and you, you know you think, oh, well, you know we're down here studying climate change. It's uh, sort of the juxtaposition of, of that is is pretty ironic and and things. But um, you know some of the some of the stats of of just facilitating life down here is, is pretty fascinating. But um, yeah, there's 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 plenty to keep your mind buzzing. If uh, if you're uh, interested in that kind of stuff,
0: yeah, cool. Well, thanks again, Hamish. That was uh, it's been really cool to chat with you tonight, um, and yeah, enjoy the the last couple of weeks down there. It'd be good to see you back in New Zealand sometime yeah. soon.